Welcome to the Driven Woman Podcast, where career and business women operating in traditionally male-dominated spaces come for advanced conversations to accelerate their journey towards success. You'll be inspired to abandon all paradigms around money, influence, lifestyle, and achievement so that you can create your own rules. I'm your host, Sophia Bryan, international lawyer and leadership coach for women. Are you ready to unleash the leader within? Let's get into today's episode. Hey there, Driven Woman. I have another amazing guest for you today. She is the womanologist. (laughs) She's a multi-award winning women's champion with diversity, inclusion and, and authentic feminine influence at the heart of her work. She's an international strategic ally and master coach to women in senior leadership whose clients include chief executives, directors, and heads of departments across countries. She knows that when these women truly thrive, uh, so do boards, organizations, industries, and ultimately our world. I love that. She uses her powerful insights as a Black Christian, facially different woman to challenge and change inner narratives about what it means to be an incredible influencer in today's fast-changing business marketplace. Driven women, please make welcome my guest, Dion Johnson. Hi, Dion. <laughs> so excited about being here, Sophie. Thank you. Yes, yes, you are welcome. Is this your first interview with a Jamaican podcaster so far? No, man, no. What? So, well, podcasting actually is podcast. Yes. But, you know, I've spoken several times in Jamaica and, um, um, you know, and I have a really powerful network of of business associates mm-hmm. in, in Jamaica, mm-hmm. usually mostly women and mostly women who are about developing the entrepreneurial yeah. landscape of Jamaica, developing women and leadership in Jamaica. So yeah, I, I, mm-hmm. I am not a stranger to Jamaica. Mm-hmm. Perhaps. That's amazing. <laughs> I, I always find it so easy to connect with persons from the UK, obviously because of the shared history but I just yeah. could not, I can't, I don't think I could live there though. It's the, the clouds, the rain. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but I always yeah. really connect with people from the UK. So Dion, yeah. on that note, I'd love for you to share with us a bit about your childhood and how that has influenced the work that you're doing today. Oh, wow. Well, there's definitely a link. I say that I was born to do this work. Mm. You know, when I was born, I um, didn't develop conventionally in my mother's womb. Mm, okay. I really, I really love saying that because, mm. you know, as I was in the womb, so I am now still not developing conventionally. But what it meant for my mother's but birthing experience was that she carried a child, me, who um, facially didn't develop conventionally. So I was born with what's called a hair lip. My 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 lower face, my mouth didn't develop conventionally. My face was asymmetrical, and very soon after birth, my left eye—I was blind in my left eye—so um, it developed cataracts and it was deformed. So I had 
a facial, a really quite pronounced facial disfigurement when I was born. And what that meant for my childhood was that one, my appearance was always a thing. Mm-hmm. And two, I spent a lot of time in hospital. So okay. I would, I, right from about three months old, right the way through to my adulthood, I would be regularly going in for corrective surgery. I would be um, having all kinds of facial operations to correct and to align my face, realign my face mm. and my mouth. So, um, so when I was four years old, as part of that process, I was gifted an artificial eye, mm-hmm. which was this plastic shell that I would slip in over my disfigured eye. Mm. It was painted to look like my good eye. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then I would have dark glasses that fit over my face. And so the whole point of those, I call them my masks, the whole point of those was to help me to hide, mm-hmm. help me to blend in look more normal look yeah more like you you know just not stand out not stick out and so what I realize like looking back at that time now is that I call it the beginning of my life behind the mask And it taught me such a powerful lesson that I didn't even know I was learning. So it taught me that if something is not right about you, if something is not like everybody else, if something's not standard or normal, then you need to get that thing hidden to be acceptable you have to you have to put it away you have to conceal it you have to mask it and so that's why I call it the beginning of my life behind the mask at four years old I was learning that you I needed to hide away this aspect of myself that was not okay Mm. and so as and from that age I just that's how I showed up in life I showed up hidden I showed up you know I had real ninja moves to make sure that people didn't see me with my bare face I um I you know I used to sleep with my artificial eye in my bra because it was uncomfortable to keep it in Mm. all the time so I used to speak sleep with my artificial eye in my bra and my glasses by my bedside and so even in my sleep Mm. if somebody came into the room unexpectedly or as I grew up as I started to have people invite people into my bedroom then um, I would have ninja move if they began to stir or if if there was a risk of them seeing me I would quickly have move where I would just quickly get it out put it even in my sleep I could do this so I I I really lived my life behind this these masks physical masks and um and then when uh, uh, you know, and I, it, I just didn't question it at all. Like this is how I showed up in the world. I went, I went into intimate relationships with my mask on. I went into higher education and work with my mask on. I went into, you know, my community. Like that's how I showed up. Everybody knew me like that. Very few people were able to see what I really looked like. And um, so this is how it went on until. 40s and when I was in my 40s this was 2000 
2009, it was, you know, I had, you know, my background was midwifery. Mm-hmm. I, I I had a long career in midwifery and then I left midwifery and went to be a director in public services, local okay. government for four okay. years. So I had, you know, a really quite good looking career. Mm-hmm. I, I was known as this kind of confident, you know, um, successful woman. Even as a midwife, I was a pioneering midwife. I was an influential midwife. I changed services. I pioneered things. You know, I I was a, that kind of leader um, in my professional life. And then, but when I, in, when I hit 2009, I got to this real low place okay. and this low place was, it just felt like, it felt like I wasn't making the kind of difference that I thought I could. It felt like, yeah, if, like the, to the onlookers, my life would look great, but I felt inside an unmistakable, undeniable ache to make more difference. I was working with vulnerable client groups. I could see the patterns that just were cycles that of poverty and deprivation. And I could see things that just, you know, I had this heart to change things, but just somehow couldn't make it. And 2009 was a real special year because Obama, the black man, moved into the White House. It was a superb spectacle like nobody thought they would see this in their lifetime a black man moving into the white house and at one point it looked like hillary clinton or him so it was going to be either a woman or a black man it was a time when the impossible things were would seemingly come into pass but at the very same time oh michael jackson died that year as well so you know michael jackson this God in the entertainment business was, you know, everybody was talking about these special people who do amazing things. But then at the very same time, England was called, um, England was 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 announced to be officially in economic crisis. Mm-hmm. There was a crash, a financial crash. So there was a lot of talk about how the poor were getting poorer. There was the middle class was going away, you know, economic struggle, deprivation, poverty, can't do like poor, you know, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting the gaps getting wider. So there's all of this talk about these sensational people and then everybody else. Mm-hmm. And this began to hurt, like in an mm-hmm. inexplicable yeah. way. It propelled you it, to take action. Mm-hmm. Well, what it, well, what it did was it quest it called me to question like which group I was in. Mm-hmm. It called me like I felt like on the inside, on one level, I knew I am great, I am strong, I am powerful, I am smart, and on the other hand, there was this kind of a mismatch that that actually my life wasn't manifesting as that it wasn't having that kind of impact and and I had to kind of admit that I belonged in this other group and I hated that I it it was a real struggle for me so I in 2009 I found myself becoming more and more depressed more and more down even though my life was looking one way on the outside on the inside you know I I I just wasn't making I'm making it happen and then my aunt died Mm 
And um, it was like one of them aunties, you know, I'm Jamaican. So, you know, Auntie Tiny was like a second mum. Her kids were like my brothers and sisters. You know, we lived just down the road from each other. Like we, we were close. And when my Auntie Tiny died, you know, it was just, it was painful. It was painful because, again, I was seeing this brilliant woman who was so bright like she was so bright like really she should have been a prime minister or something she should have changed the world somehow and here she was gone and I could see that it was hurting me that actually why can't we reach our potential why can't we do what we're here to do and this was really happening and that you know we had nine nights you know how we do nine nights so in the in the process of the nine nights um I saw Jay a friend of mine that well she's not a friend she wasn't a friend anymore but we were friends when we were young and now we were in our 40s. She had this 10-year-old son that I hadn't seen. But we were trying to catch up and, you know, work out, you know, what happened to you? And did you still do this? And how's that person? And we're talking. And um, and Jay's son is just getting in the way of the conversation. He was irritating, like fidgeting, making funny noises. Jay said, boy, don't you see what we're trying to talk? And 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 then the boy almost in slow motion his finger went up almost in slow motion and he said mom she's ugly and when like the place was full men over there playing dominoes women over there laughing and chatting you know people hanging out there women in the kitchen cooking and it's like his voice just filled the room and I felt it just it hurt so much it was like a big thump and it brought me back to the playground it brought me back to my childhood of being disfigured of just it just it just it just hurt so much I've been living my life behind the mask all those years and here comes this boy and it's like bang and it really hurt his words hurt me but you know I noticed something very powerful I noticed that even though his words hurt me, I noticed as if for the first time that if you were in the room looking at me, you couldn't tell that pain was going on on the inside. Mm. I mean, I kept my composure, you know, I held on to my swag. Mm -hmm. I, I kept myself together. And it's like I noticed it for the first time in that moment. I just noticed, like, nobody seems to be able to see what's going on on the inside. Mm. I was able to compose the outside while the inside was dying. And I noticed it loud. And I noticed it that week because every single day that week was the same thing. I was The next day, I was in the foyer of my church and these kids came up behind me, tapped me on the shoulder, and I turned around. They pointed at my face. They laughed, this high-pitched, screeching laugh, and then ran off. And it's like, bang, like right in that same place. And every day that week, I used to call it the week from hell, because every day that week something happened and, and caused me to feel that same bang in the place. And it was all go pointing at my face. Mm. and I was like what is this every single day something happened and by the end of that week 
I was exhausted and the pain was high. I found myself on my knees with my hands up in the air, crying out to God, rocking and saying, God, something is hurting me. I don't know what this is. I've had a hellish week and I'm in pain. And that's when I entered into, I like to say, I entered into a conversation with God. Mm. And I begin to hear these questions coming to me. Dion, so tell me something, girl. What is all this covering up about anyway? Yeah. When, when are you going to let people see the real you? When are you going to show up for real? I, I was gobsmacked. I, I just, I couldn't believe that I was having this conversation. I couldn't believe that these questions were coming to me. I had been wearing the artificial eye and the dark glasses for 40 years. Mm-hmm. And I had never asked myself, I'd never questioned it. I thought, of course I have to wear them. Of course I, how would I be able to go out into the world if I didn't have these? And, you know, I was speaking out loud because I found me on God roll. You know, I was speaking out loud and I was saying, you know, you know, of course I, of course I have to wear, what do you mean? Like, how, how could I not wear these? I didn't call them masks at the time. How could I not wear these glasses, this artificial eye? How could I not? Look at me. And as I was talking with God, I could hear myself saying, look at me. Look, it wouldn't be fair to make people have to be able to look at this face. Mm. It wouldn't be fair to subject people. And as it was coming out of my mouth, I was catching it. Like, my God, I didn't realize I was thinking about about me. That somehow to, to present my real self to the world would be a cruel act or to present myself to people would be would be some would be distressing and just not, not a nice thing to do mm. and when I hear these sentiments coming out of my own belly out of my own mouth I was I was gobsmacked I knew that that couldn't be right I've been doing lots of professional development I'd been I was a Christian loving Jesus going to church reciting I'm fearfully and wonderfully made I was you know I had all the lyrics about how fearfully and wonderfully I was but here coming out of my own belly out of my own mouth was a realization that I am so grotesque that it would that it would be unfair to subject the real me to the world to my and I just I didn't know how I was still on the floor with my hands up in the air I didn't know how I didn't know what I was gonna how it seemed ludicrous the, the 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 thought of letting people see me without my physical masks on was was nauseating Mm. I, I, it frightened me, pet, terrified me, petrified me. I made up in my mind while I was there on the floor with my hands up in the air, same way. I said, I'm going to find a way. I felt called to find a way to show up in my world for real. Mm. I yes. felt called to let people see the real me. Back then I was talking about my face. But actually, what it turned into in the, in the months and years after was I had to find out what it meant for the real me to show up. 
mm. not just my face, yes. but me. I realized that I had been covering up on all kinds of levels, trying to be like this over there, trying to hide like that over there, trying to be like this for him, like that for her, like this for like I was I was trying to be everything to everybody and to hide what was wrong with me. And I just made up in my mind, 2009, that that could no longer be the case. I didn't know what, how, I didn't know what, how, what that meant. And so I just, you know, came out of that. I began to, after a couple of years, that was 2009. So I took 2010, 2011, just to really heal mm-hmm. and let that sink in. And pretty soon after, about 2012, um, I remember being asked, a story my story like why are you here I was applying to join a women's network you know they were asking me why are you here what do you what 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 do you why you do what you do because I was still coaching at the time and um, I said you know I really want to help women to show up and you know they asked me why and so I got my video camera out the no no iPhone back then but I got my video camera out and I just recorded a message about what the story I just shared with yes. you and I, um, I I recorded it. It was about a 15-minute long video of me just pouring out my heart and saying that we have to learn to show up for real. You know, women need to learn to show up for real. And the video went viral. Mm. Like uh, people from all around the world, beautiful women, you know, smart women, savvy women, you know, business women, rich women, women who are doing well, you know, saying, hey, Dion, I heard your story and it's powerful. Dion, I heard your story and it's touching my life. Dion, I heard your story and it's resonating. You know, I don't have a face like yours. I never wore artificial eye and dark glasses, but I know what it is to hide. I know what it is to play small. I know what it is to shrink, to cover myself, to hide aspects of myself, to hate aspects of myself. I know, I recognize your story in my experience. Mm -hmm. And so, as I got goosebumps telling you. Yes, I'm getting goosebumps. Yeah, Mm -hmm. go ahead. Yeah, well, I think it's really key to be open because as I started to share my story, they started sharing their stories with me. And I'm telling you that we begin to learn, we begin to grow, we begin to understand this thing called masking. We begin to understand that women are hiding. And, you know, and so little by little, it started to shape, it started to shape my message. It, this was this became the, the cornerstone of my work, my desire to see us showing up for real. And what I've learned over the years of studying how we hide and mask and cover ourselves up and play small and lose our voice and stop speaking up and stop showing up. I've learned that actually it's not just painful and bad for us to live that kind of existence, but the world is aching and groaning for the powerful woman that's behind there that we're hiding putting her in the closet the world really needs her now like really really the world is in tragic circumstances there is that it's dire the world is confused it's it's in chaos and I believe have developed the belief over the years that it's actually the voice of the woman the power of humanity I like to say that the world is most needing right now for for some of our most prolific problems 
to get handled, they will not get handled with current systems. Current systems need to be transformed. Current systems need to be rebuilt. Current systems need to be uprooted and refounded and dismantled and rebuilt and restructured. And it can't happen with the same kind of thinking that created those systems in the first place. Mm, right. but, but we need... We need new voices, new leadership, new sound in high-level leadership. That's why I put myself there. We need new sound in culture shaping with the new insights into systems development. And that's why I need us to be showing up for real. Mm -hmm. We need humanity to show up for real. The world cannot be well without us regaining our power, reclaiming our authority and taking our place and occupying our positions with power to influence. Yes. Uh, Influence, your book is called Influential Woman. And I think Mm -hmm. tied into influence is also income. And yeah. I think that as women, uh, after we've crossed the hurdle of possibly showing up, you know, letting people see our faces, yeah. gradually removing the mask, there's that hurdle where the income aspect of things uh, is concerned. Uh, so I want you to share your perspectives uh, where how can women overcome the fear of seeming as though they're demanding too much or feeling as though they're unworthy of uh, experiencing a high income and the high level lifestyle that comes with having a great income. Uh, You know, if there's something that you had to do internally to uh, not get caught up in that, especially as a black woman, there are, there are so many opinions about what we deserve, you know, and there are so many opinions about what we should spend money on versus what we shouldn't be spending money on. And there's yeah. also the talk about, you know, lifting someone up, right? Yeah. And even at the expense of our own happiness. So talk yeah. to us about that. What can we do to kind of shatter those uh, mental hurdles where income is concerned? Yeah, I think that there's a really powerful link between um, esteem and money. Mm. You know, there's a really powerful link between how we see ourselves and our ability to receive, um, receive big. Mm. And I, I personally have, I personally have um, experience around this, you know, that um, for me, it was about um, when I was in the mindset of um, hiding and uh, the real me is grotesque. What was happening was that I was also experiencing huge challenges in my finances. Mm. So, um, so that I was always, um, always, um, I, I invested in property quite a lot in my early adulthood. Uh, so I, I always had a career and I always, um, invested in property so I would buy properties do them up and become landlords I would go around collecting collecting money from my tenants every month money would just be flowing in but you know something I couldn't hold it Mm. I couldn't keep it I couldn't ask for it in my professional life and what I've learned is that 
the way that I saw myself was slave girl mentality, that I had inherited an identity that was rooted in a, a time before me, a legacy before me, a legacy where we didn't have, mm-hmm. where we depended on people to throw us throw us crumbs and, and to survive at a time when we had tyrannical um slave masters and 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 where we had where we depended on men to be okay and i i i was living like that in my life with money in my adult life when that time was really is it like that time i didn't have to be bound by that but i was creating that unconsciously and couldn't even see it so I just accepted this sick money line mm. money come money go like like I got holes in my bucket you know being asking for less like almost working for free as a coach when I first went into business as a coach you know giving my services away I remember having a conversation with, um, I remember approaching, uh, my background was midwifery, so I remember approaching the head of midwifery because I wanted to do some work with the leadership there. And, and she said to me, so how much does this cost? And I, can't, I was so embarrassed. I can't even remember the number, what I told her, but it was so stupid. Yeah, ridiculous. It was yeah. a stupid little number that I that every time I think back at it, I wince a little bit. But and I asked myself, what was going on there? But there's just such a challenge to ask for my, to see my worth and then ask for it. It was such a challenge. We could talk about the unequal system, but I think it'd be more beneficial for us on this conversation to think about how we, how we co-create this inequality, yes. this income inequality. You see, it's like we have to first understand that slavery is done, that we are no longer slave girls. And we, like you, I learned in my unmasking journey that you can live, you can lead in high levels. You can be bright enough to fight and climb into the system. But unless you rid yourself of the slave girl poverty mentality thinking you're going to you're you're not going to be able to keep up what you have you you you're or you're gonna hold be so afraid of losing it that you have some kind of money story mm-hmm. and we need to we I help my clients to understand that we talk about money like we call it out we talk about money as I'm doing my work now helping women to ascend to new heights of influence we speak about money, like we call it out. Yeah. We don't just talk about influence, we talk about money. And we talk about, about fixing, our, learning our money stories. I ask my clients to think about their mothers and their fathers, because oftentimes we learn our money habits from them. I ask them to think about ha- their history with money and see the patterns. We must grow. And I find that as we develop as in the book, I say queen influencers, regal mm. influencers, sovereign influencers, high level influencers. That means that we have to heal. That means that we have to, you know, get our belief system straight, that we have to examine our habits. We have to really look at how we flow in life. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, we'll be called to look at our money and how we deal with it. We have to face it. Mm-hmm. If you are a bright, like that was what was happening to me in 2009. I knew I was bright. I knew I was, 
I knew I had something really powerful to offer. And yet the bailiffs were coming to my house. Mm. Didn't make sense. It's a mismatch. I want everyone who's listening to this to make that mismatch, the, make the mismatch a trigger yes. that causes you to, to, to want to find the root of this and see what is going on. Because it's possible as we grow and heal and, and get our heads straight and develop our message and grow as influencers, we ultimately interfere that with that pattern in our finances. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Yes. All right. So uh, a portion of your book addresses uh, operate coexisting with men and yeah. uh, leading in um, where males are at the top. So what would you say to the woman who is afraid or has fear about uh, how she's going to be perceived in her desire to pursue leadership? I remember listening to, to this podcast once and the the guest the person that was being interviewed said that she she met this guy at her workplace and you know she was on track to being a manager or partner and he was on track to being a partner and so you know they fell in love and then she decided to resign so that you know it wouldn't interfere with his fast track yeah. to being a partner and I thought, well, obviously, you know, they're still married and it, things worked out. But I thought to myself, yeah. why was she the one that had to make that yeah. sacrifice? You know what I mean? Because yeah. she still yeah. eventually went on to continue pursuing her career. So yeah. what would you say to women who are fearful of going into leadership because, you know, they might be competing with men? Yeah, I say great that you are feeling the fear. If you can feel the fear and acknowledge it, this is an amazing starting point. You see, th- let me tell you a story about my unmasking journey. So I'll tell you two stories. So when I decided on that floor that I was going to let people see the real me, mm-hmm. let people feel my truth, let people understand what it is that I'm here to do, see me in my true self. When I decided that that was going to happen, I was petrified. And I told you that I, 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 um, I, I had to prepare to show up for real. That's mm-hmm. a clue. Yeah. And, I, and, and so I went on to this process of um, developing a plan. And one of, the, one of the aspects of the plan was I was going to walk. I was going to walk on the street. I was going to just walk on the street without my artificial eye and my dark glasses on. I was going to just walk. And I remember getting, going to the um, train station, walking to the train station um, without my artificial eye, my, my eye in my bra. <laughs> and, just, uh, and just not letting, and just walking on the street. And so I noticed that people weren't looking, like people didn't vomit or people didn't stop me and ask me all kinds of things that I thought they were going to. And then when I got onto the train, when I I was standing at the tube station and the train came, the doors opened and I was shaking inside because I was, I'd walked all the way to the train station. Now I was getting on the train without my artificial eye and the dark glasses. So I walked onto the train and as soon as I got onto the train, I saw a woman and she looked like she was studying me. She looked Mm. like she was 
at me and watching me. So I fixed my attitude now, like bad girl, you know, like I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to, if she said anything to me, I'm gonna, like I was ready to fight, you know. I was, I was really fixing myself. I got a bad attitude and I sat down and I saw her staring at me. And I could, and I'm, and I'm saying like, I'm ready for you. I'm ready, ready, ready. <laughs> and so, so then, um, then she leaned over, almost like in slow motion. She leaned over and she said, "Excuse me, my dear." I said, "Yeah." She said, "Where did you get that coat?" Oh. <laughs> <laughs> It taught me such a powerful lesson. It taught me such a powerful lesson. I was petrified of getting on that train. But actually, the thing that I was fearing the most wasn't even an issue. Like, they wanted to niche because it was a bad coat. coat. It was a very nice Yeah. It was a very nice coat. And so I told her where I got it, you know. Uh, and, and we had, we exchanged pleasantries. Yes. I learned a very powerful lesson from that. That what you think, you can't what you think might be going on in your mind in their minds actually in your mind mm-hmm. like you know what's going on in your mind I want to tell you one other quick story about this point I remember I was working with um I have a, a client the minister of De- the ministry of defense here in London so their their HQ is in the city right in the heart of the city you don't drive into the city here you um you catch the train you catch the bus mm-hmm. on the train so I'd had a long day of working at, at the Ministry of Defence and um, and it was time to go home and I could really have just jumped in the car, but I didn't drive. So I the bus came, I jumped on the bus, it was packed. It was like at the end of the work, work day, the bus was packed and I saw one seat and I just made a beeline for that seat and mm-hmm. I splopped myself down and um and then I thought oh, I haven't got my watch on so I said to the woman who was sitting next to me she was looking out the window <clears throat> I said to her um do you know the time excuse me can you tell me the time please and I could see that she was as tired as me so almost like in slow motion she pulled her arm up to look at her watch she saw the time and then I saw her turn to look at me and tell me the time she looked at my face and she went <gasps> Oh my she god. Screamed. She looked at my face and she screamed. Her bag went up in the air, her lipstick flew out of her bag, her newspaper went that way. She was shaking. She was looking at me. She was really hmm. it's like hysterical. She looked at my face and it horrified her. It horrified I horrified this woman. And I could feel like hmm. a great cloud coming over me. Yeah shame embarrassment guilt all kinds of things coming over me and 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 then descending like a dark cloud and then I remembered I remembered that I decided that I was going to I decided that there was value in learning how to show up for real yes I I remembered that when I was preparing to show up I remember all the horrific things that I thought could happen I I I imagined all these people vomiting or poor reaction and now like I knew this was a possibility Mm -hmm. 
I knew that showing up for real was not going to be taken well by some people, that some people would reject me, some people would ridicule me, some people would dismiss me, some people would be cruel to me. I knew that and I got ready. So here I was on the bus needing to activate that readiness. Yes. I was here on this bus needing to activate this readiness. I bent down, I picked up the lipstick, I helped her grab her bag and put in the things and back in. I touched her on the shoulder and I smiled and said, I'll get up. Mm. And I got up and I moved to the Mm. back of the bus. And and just, and I sat there. It was a horrible journey home. When I got off the bus, I stood for a few seconds thinking about what had just happened. I, I hurt. I, I felt embarrassed but I knew that that was part of the decision that I'd made mm-hmm. and here I am still alive mm-hmm. still last still discovering myself still showing up for real still demanding to be seen and heard yeah. and taken seriously it didn't kill me so for those of us that are afraid of showing up in any dimension whether it be personal relationships or if it be professional relationships or it be community relationships like you know if we're finding ourselves afraid of asserting ourselves assert afraid of speaking up or showing up authentically and powerfully there's a preparation process I call it prepare to be powerful that we have to prepare ourselves to be able to to respond when the unspeakable happens or when the unfavorable happens or when when it doesn't go the way we want it or people don't like it or you know like inevitably if you decide that you're going to show up in your power as a woman as a black woman as a facially different woman as a as a woman you will piss some people mm-hmm. off and people will say who do you think you are who do you think you are some people will be horrified like the woman on the bus you know and then there'll be some people who just think wow tell me where you got that coat yeah tell me how you learned that They're, those people will be your people yes mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. tell us uh, about what you're hoping to achieve with um your book and I also would like for you to share the journey to meeting your publisher because your book is published by oh not remembering the name of the publisher right now Hay House which is huge so you know um you know they're they're I know I interviewed a self-publisher but you know I think that's kind of like everybody's dream to get a deal so yeah. how did you, what were some of the steps you took to get that? And what are you All hoping right. to now achieve? All right, so before, before you ask about, oh, so you say, what do I want to happen as a result of the book? Mm-hmm. All right, so there's, there's, there's some big themes in the book. The book has, the first theme is inequality is no longer appropriate. Yes. Inequality is no longer appropriate. At a time when we can send people to, we, we just celebrated, NASA's just celebrating last week um, the, the bot that landed on Mars, right? Mm-hmm. There's people contemplating space travel for their vacation. So at the time when we can do whatever we want, it's now no longer appropriate that we have these issues of 
in inequality and racism and and injustice and indifference like these big predicaments these stubborn predicaments are no longer appropriate when we can do what the heck we like when we decide something and it happens you know when Kennedy mm-hmm. said that we're going to send somebody to the moon it's not because we knew how to do it it's just that he decided that it's time we yeah. knew how to do it yes so I don't think it's a inequality is no longer appropriate the system that creates inequality needs to be challenged the second theme of the book is that women are the ones to do it, I think. Women are the ones to teach the system, help the system have a change of heart. Right now, the system is heavily IQ and, you know, it's very intelligent, but it's not spiritually intelligent. Mm-hmm. It's not loving. It's not kind. And I believe that women and are wired and divinely constructed to help the world know how to be compassionate loving fair kind just those kind of things so I believe that women in leadership are the key to the systems of our world having a change of heart Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, so the third theme of the book is that if we are going to do that as women when we're not ready yet there's some work for us to do for us to be able to take up that, occupy that role, that answer that call to be that kind of leader in our world. And so my hope for the book is that women will hear the call and that they will decide, they will say yes, answer the call to showing up powerfully, preparing to be powerful in their domain, wherever that domain is. Mm -hmm. And the book presents seven habits that really, that I I use, that I'm cultivating on my journey to being more and more influential in my space. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I really want the reader to hear the call, answer the call, and then embark on what I'm calling the power path, like finding their own peculiar personal um, power path, path to where they are going to be making their biggest difference in the world, the work of their life, doing the work of their lives, really. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and the journey becoming published, yeah. Yeah, so um, so <laughs> I uh, I my guru. I've always invested heavily in my development. Always, um, always have coaches. Always have mentors, and several of them would say to me over and over, Dion, you need to write a book. Dion, you really should tell your story. Dion, you should really write a book. Like it was, um, you know, the the, the theory was from several coaches that you can just bang out a book I, I I knew about women my background is midwifery I spent a lot of time alongside women and leadership was a theme of my career and um, personal development was a f- ongoing theme of my life you know so women leadership and personal development I thought I know these three things very well um, how difficult could it be like just to bang a book out like you know they just told me it doesn't have to be war and peace you can just write a you know a simple 
how to book and you know it will act like a big business card it sounded like a good idea so I really tried and so the more I sat down to write this book the more I realized that I wasn't being called to just bang out any kind of generic book I was being called to write a meaningful book and that challenged me to my core it challenged me I was having I didn't understand the challenge I, I, I struggled to write. Sometimes I would stare at blank pages for a long time. Sometimes I would have the idea clear in my mind. And then when I go to write it, there would just be a complete block that I would really struggle. I hired book coaches. I had, I had uh, um, a real brilliant coach who celebrated the ideas, but saw me struggle inexplicably like just undeniable struggle to actually get the book written it was a long and slow process and then once when in one rendition of the book I say that I wrote the book three times over because like I was writing for a long time just trying to get the ideas out so the book went through several renditions and on one one rendition I realized I was really struggling to write one chapter and the revelation came that the one chapter was actually a book in its own right Mm. and um, and I didn't know how to make it into a chapter and at the same time I saw an advert for um for diverse with so um it, it was a it was called the diverse hay house was at the same time they were saying hmm we don't attract black writers we don't Mm. attract non-white writers so it's a very big publishing house and it had minutes like hardly any representation that was not you know white no non-white representation so they decided because they had one um one writer her name is um oh god her name's just gone out of my head she wrote the book called purpose Mm-hmm. and uh, she published with Hay House and she challenged them she said hey how come I'm the only one and so they decided that yeah this is not okay we need to do this diverse wisdom program so at the same time I'm struggling to get a chapter who was supposed to be a book mm-hmm. you know I see this ad and I and I apply for this this place because it's, it's it they're, they're asking us to present a pitch so I just make this thing up I just make for this pitch and I send it in and I win the competition to go to their book writing workshop so this book writers workshop is an annual event it happens in America and it happens here in the UK and I think it happens as well in Australia and Asia so it's a global thing but it happens yearly and that I won the prize so they they had an all expenses paid trip to go and spend the two days at their conference you know learning how to put a proposal together learning how to write your book and so on and it was really powerful and then um and then at the end of that conference they launched another competition and the competition was not just about diverse wisdom now it was about everybody like Mm -hmm. nationally nationally you were invited to pitch like you had six months to prepare your 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 proposal and so uh, I was invited to you know, as part, just part of the audience to go for it. And I, um, as part of the Diverse Wisdom program, they gave me a mentor. David Hamilton was mine, this prolific Hay House author. We became really firm friends. But I told him, you know, my life's busy, complicated, got lots of things going on. I don't think I'm going to um, submit my, I I don't think I'm going to go for the big prize. 
So it was about a week before, a few days before, actually. And he rang me up and said, so what? where's your proposal? How can you send me your proposal? And I said, I'm not doing it. He said, don't let me have to come there to you. You're doing it. You really roughed me up so bad. Like he said, don't be stupid, you know. So I, like, I literally had a couple of days to get it together. I just, you know, I just put something together. I just said, you know what, I'll, I'll just do it because he's told me to I sent it off I could not believe when months later I got the call that actually I was the winner of the of the of the book deal so I won the book deal based on my proposal that I bitched together (laughs) in the last minute you know um and but then I had to write the book you know and that was a whole other journey (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so I I won uh, so I really, there are several things in that story. Like the fact that the world is waking up to the need for new sounds. Mm-hmm. That places that were closed are now developing a conviction about the need to open up. That's important for us to hear. And being willing to be coached, even at your level, you needed to take the advice of a mentor. uh, And you had resistance, even as as someone who has always been in personal development, you had your own resistance to overcome. Yes. And and we all, like it's ongoing. Like, do you know how many women have come to me and said that I've been watching your work for years, but frightened to come? These are not, I work with high-level leaders, and this is what they're saying. I've watched you for years, frightened to come or felt intimidated or felt unqualified or felt something, but why they didn't come for, for long months, years of watching me thinking, I need her help, I need her help, and I, and I didn't and go for it. I say, why? They say, because you got, you know, you're so together. you got all your ducks in a row. I can't tell you the number of people who told me that they can see I've got all my ducks in a row. Wow. Wow. It's like we have to understand. Like we have made qualified. We have disqualified ourselves based on lies based on what we think it should look like if you're going to be a high-level leader or if you're going to be the woman for the job. We don't believe that we should not know things or have days where we completely lose our composure or we get stuck or we don't know or it's painful or it's hard or we need help. Like, we need help. And that's not a disqualifier. I'm telling you, women, it's not an accident that we feel like this. This This is... it's coming from history, but I'm saying that it's time for us to heal. It's time for us to get our heads straight. And it's time for us to really invest at a high level in developing our message and our ability to influentially deliver that message to the people that need to hear it. Like we need to develop that stuff. That doesn't happen by accident. That doesn't happen on autopilot we have to invest in that stuff we have to immerse ourselves be the lead be led be taught be criticized and critiqued Mm -hmm. be 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 put in the deep end you know we we need to invest we get serious about the core 
to influence. We Thank need to get you. serious about it. Thank you for your just being so generous with uh, sharing your story and uh, challenging us. And um, I know this is going to resonate with everyone that listens to the show. And so my last question to you, Dion, is what keeps you driven? Yeah, do you know, it's really funny because um, I, I think for so much of my life, I was driven to prove the naysayers wrong. I was driven to to defy the, the, the stereotypes and defy their lies about our great people. You know, I was just driven to do that. And as I get older, like I just realized that I'm 55 coming up and it just feels like, like, wow, how did that happen? Mm -hmm. And I find that as I'm getting older, I'm driven to be led. Mm -hmm. I'm driven to be led. I'm driven to, to hold divine hands and be led at defy logic and I'm I'm driven to manifest the life that I was born to live Mm -hmm. divinely Mm -hmm. this is what gets me excited that my I've walked long enough now to see that I am I was born somebody and if I just keep my head clean my heart clean my my ways clean that I can actually hold the hands of life and I can get led I'm driven to learn how to not let those hands go to to not rely on myself to not weary myself to to strive to to do things but to allow myself to be assisted divinely into my destiny like this is what drives me now I'm just curious to know what it's going to look like like when I when what's the next version and the next version and the next version of me going to look like what does it look like when I evolve to be the woman that I was born to be like I want I'm driven to get there I'm driven to arrive at the place where I'm making that that level of difference and then that level of difference and then that level of difference. That's what drives me now. Mm. I'm curious mm. about what mm. she looks like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Dion. And I have to say before I go, every time I listen to a woman uh, like yourself who has uh, charted a significant path for herself, her drive is no longer about you know shattering stereotypes or... burning down the patriarchy it's understanding self and recognizing what am I here to do I'm going to do my good work and you know and focus on understanding me and you know I I always find that so powerful that it's really Mm -hmm. that inner work that needs to be done yeah yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. This has, yes, this has been so good, <laughs> Dion. And uh, I'm I'm looking forward to completing your book and sharing my takeaways, um, yes. and and sh- you know encouraging others to have a read of it as well. You did the yeah. audio. You you are the speaker in the audio. Oh, nice. Yes. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. I am. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. It's awesome. another amazing, another mm-hmm. amazing experience. So mm-hmm. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day and, um, uh, you know, I'll be staying in your orbit for sure. <laughs> and I yours. <laughs> <laughs> take, take care. Bye. See you later.
Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Driven Woman podcast. If you received a value from this conversation, I encourage you to share it with a friend and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Your reviews allow other driven women to benefit from the amazing conversations that we have over here. Follow the show on Instagram at Driven Woman Podcast and on Twitter at The Driven Woman Show. Until next time, stay driven.